Uh, last night I was uh, telling my two oldest sons uh, good night, and uh, I mentioned that tomorrow I was actually going to have to leave in the morning, which they're not used to because I don't go to work anymore. And they said, why? And then one of them said, are you preaching? And I said, yes, I'm, I'm actually preaching. And then one of them, who, who clearly has the gift of encouragement, said, great, Dad, preaching to an empty room. Thanks, son. That was, that was, really, that was really helpful. Um, obviously, we wish that we could be together. I, I wish that you were here. I wish that this room was full of living people, that we could actually shake hands and hug and I'll draw the line at the holy kiss. We won't do that. But um, obviously, I wish that was the case. I know you wish you could be here as well. Uh, but we can't. This is not a normal time. In fact, there's pretty much nothing normal about life right now, at least how we've understood what normal is. There's virtually nothing normal about life, uh, which is exhausting. You know, it's stressful. We're worried about the virus. We're worried about our jobs, we're worried about the economy, we're worried about a nation that seems to be coming apart at the seams. Yesterday as we celebrated July 4th, I, I, I can't remember a July 4th that felt like this one, where the nation feels so bitterly divided. You know, we're, we're exhausted, we're stressed out, we're worried, and, and all of that creates this, this ever-present, um, unrelenting stress that just sort of weighs over life, like a blanket. In fact, there's, there's evidence that the mental health crisis in our country is actually outpacing all the other crises that we're experiencing. I was reading just on Friday that according to the Census Bureau, about one-third of Americans, think about that number, one-third of Americans show signs of clinical depression or anxiety. That's like 100 million people. And here within the church, we're certainly not immune to that. All right, we're anxious, we're fearful, we're stressed out, we're exhausted, and for good reason. We are living in bizarre and chaotic times, and we feel the weight of that. And so this morning, I, I want us to look at Psalm 46. Psalm 46 is one of my favorite psalms. Uh, I've actually preached it here at Grace before, although it's been several years. And I, I confess that every time I have reread it and re-preached it, I, I feel like I understand it a little bit differently and so I trust that the, the Holy Spirit will speak through the living word of God, and this is a, a time to revisit what God has to say to us in this psalm. Uh, psalm 46 was Martin Luther's favorite psalm, the one who uh, composed that beautiful hymn that we listened to earlier, Mighty Fortresses Are God. Uh, Mar Martin Luther, of course, knew a thing or two about living with stress. He could experience a little bit of, of anxiety in his life. How many of us can say that we've been hunted by the Catholic Church? Um, and whenever life would get too overwhelming for him, he would say, let's read Psalm 46. And so that's what we are going to do this morning. Because we need to be reminded that God is not caught off guard by any of this. That God is not overwhelmed by all that we are overwhelmed by. At, at no point in all of what we are experiencing right now has God thought, oh, hold on just a second. Let me, let me catch my breath. But that's exactly what we need to do. We need to breathe deeply and we need to remember that every breath comes from the Lord who is the creator and the sustainer of life and that none of this is beyond his control. So let's look at Psalm 46. In my Bible, reading from the NIV, it has a, a heading right at the very beginning before verse one. I just want to read. It says, For the director of music of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. 
So Alamath there, it's italicized in my Bible. And, and we don't know exactly what that means, but probably has something to do with like a genre of music. But it's interesting that this is a, a, a psalm that is written by the sons of Korah. Uh, most Old Testament scholars believe that Korah refers to the same Korah that we find in number 16. So if you remember your Old Testament history, uh, Moses and Aaron, uh, God uses them to lead the people of, of Israel out of Egypt. And so you see this in Exodus. And then they, they head out into uh, the wilderness, and they, they are trying to get to the promised land. And in number 16, Korah and two other men, they lead this insurgency, this rebellion against Moses and Aaron. They are rejecting Moses and Aaron's leadership that God has established. And so it kind of reaches this climactic point in the story in number 16 where, where God tells Moses and Aaron, move away, tell all of Israel to move away from these men and their families, these insurgents. And then God opens up the earth and they are swallowed alive. And if that's not enough, then fire comes down from heaven and there's a plague and God wipes out thousands of people, these rebels who rejected the authority of the men that God had chosen to lead his people. It's a devastating story. It's a horrible story. And yet here there's a picture of grace. I don't want us to miss that, that generations later, Korah's descendants, some of them who didn't rebel, who did live, now they've become worship leaders and songwriters for the temple, and they write many of the psalms that we find in the Psalter. And this is one of their songs. So verse one, God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, Though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging, Selah, it's, it's to take a breath, it's to reflect on oh, just how profound these words are. That God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. And then he goes into this description in verses two and three. Did you see this? It's basically the worst possible chains of events. It's, it's his worst case scenario. It's the end of the world. The earth itself gives way, though the mountains are uprooted and dropped into the middle of the seas. The waters roar and foam, threatening the rest of creation. Think flood imagery. In fact, it's, it's so terrifying, it's so horrific, that the mountains themselves shake with fright. It's though creation itself is coming undone. It's the end of the world. It's the worst case scenario. Our list might go something like fires raging across Australia. Do you remember when that was a thing? That was back in January. A, a global pandemic with, with millions infected and hundreds of thousands dead. The economy crumbling. Injustice in the streets and rioting. Our nation divided. And I, I didn't have to mention the killer hornets. So this might not be the worst case scenario yet, but it, it, it sure feels like it's headed in that way. And what the psalmist wants us to understand from very, very beginning, verse one, is that when things go very wrong in our world, God is there. He's not far off. He's not distant. He didn't create the world and then go on vacation. He's not indifferent to the crises of our lives, to what we're experiencing even now. It says God is is present and available to protect and sustain us. He is our refuge, the place to which we run when we need cover. And he is our strength, the one who keeps us going even when the world is collapsing around us. 
God is our ever-present help in trouble. We, we need to be careful here, though, because oftentimes we get ahead of ourselves. Um, we're worriers. I'm a worrier. You're a worrier. We imagine things that haven't even happened yet. And oftentimes, those are the troubles that we actually fear the most. Have you ever noticed that? It's the things that haven't happened that, that keep us up at night, that haunt us and, and we become terrified over, we catastrophize, we start worrying about what happens if we get sick or what happens if we can't pay the bills or what happens if this happens or that happens. And we take on stress and anxiety as though those troubles are real before they actually exist. C.S. Lewis has a, a theme that he comes back to in a couple of his books pointing out that God's provision for us, his help in times of trouble, it doesn't extend to troubles that don't yet exist. So for example, when, when Jesus uh, prays to the Father, uh, give us our daily bread, or when he says, don't worry about tomorrow because today has enough trouble of its own, what that means is that God's help is for the present, not the future. When, when we get to the future, that will be the present and God will be there too. But right now, we're in the present and God's pre help is for this time and this moment. That what we're facing and enduring right now, that's what he's here for. Not for future troubles that we've invented in our minds, products of our imagination. Now, I think there's a couple of reasons why this is helpful for us. First of all, uh, what Lewis wants us to understand is that there is an incoherence to the idea that God who is real can help us with something that is imaginary. So for example, if I put my kids to bed and one of them starts saying, Daddy, I'm really scared of the monster in the closet. Well, there's nothing I can do about the monster in the closet. It's not real. I can't get rid of the monster in the closet. It, it's an imaginary thing. Now, now, his fear of the monster, that's real, but the monster's not real. And so what I can do is I can attempt to calm his fears, but I can't actually do anything about the monster because it's not real. And what Lewis says is that when we're afraid of imaginary future troubles, things that could happen, what I need in the present, right, in this moment, isn't for God to get rid of the monster because it's not real, but actually to calm my fears and to give me peace. See, in that moment, though, it's easy for me to get confused, and I think that the monster is my trouble. I think the monster is what my problem is, but it's not. It's actually my fear. And so often case, in those moments, God's presence is felt, and that he gives me peace. He lets me know that he's there. And what that means is that when you and I are, are lying awake at night and we're stressed, and we're anxious and we're, we're fearful of things that may happen. We're worried about this, we're worried about that. What if this, what if that, what if this happens? That in those moments, while it's, it's, I certainly can pray that God would protect me and protect my family, absolutely. But the more important prayer in that moment is actually that God would make me brave. He would give me strength. He would give me peace that I would know his presence his unfailing love. And when we do that, we give our present trouble, in this case, our worry and our fear and anxiety to the Lord and we leave the future to him. There's a second reason though, I think Lewis's observation is helpful. When we focus on future imaginary troubles and we become so 
dialed into those. Even pleading that God would, would take that away or not let that happen. We become so focused on those things that we fail to experience his presence in the here and now. I can become so focused on what could happen, all the what ifs of life that I fail to see and I take for granted how God is present right now with me. Which is another way of saying that we're, we're not aware of God's presence. But, but notice, it's only through being aware of God's presence that we experience freedom from fear. Did you see that? Look, look at what the psalmist says in verse two. Therefore, we will not fear. Why not? Because of what he said in verse one. Because God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. See, our fear isn't relieved because God is present. He's always present. <laughs> that, that hasn't changed. The only thing that relieves my fear is when I am aware of God's presence. When we're tuned into him. Strangely enough, a pandemic can help with that. See, when life is good and just kind of coasting along and work is good and the kids are good and money's good and all the rest of it, everything seems to be going great, it's so easy to take God for granted. He becomes like an afterthought, something in the back of our minds that every once in a while we tune into. He's like a, a parent or a grandparent that we visit on Sunday mornings. We just check in. Until there's a pandemic. Until you get sick. Until you lose your job. Until someone dies. And then pain becomes God's megaphone. God uses suffering, even the fear of suffering, to get our attention, to tune us into his presence. Again, it's not that he wasn't there. He's always there. He's always present. We just weren't paying attention. And what the psalmist wants us to understand is that even in times like these, when it feels like everything that could go wrong is going wrong, that God is there. He is our ever-present help in trouble. But we have to have eyes to see. And when we're aware of God's presence, then there is a peace and stability that's available to us. No matter what is going on in the world. That's the picture that we find here in verses four and five. He writes this, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the most high dwells. God is within her, the city. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. In ancient times, and in fact, you can still see this today in parts of the world. Um, I had the, the incredible blessing of going to Israel a little over a year ago with some of you from Grace. And uh, we got to travel around this amazing country and see cities that, were, uh, that are, are listed in the Old Testament. Like you can read some of their history in your Bible and then you can go and see the ruins of these cities. And what stands out to you though is the links that they would go to protect and to camouflage, to hide their water supply. And of course, the reason is simple. If there's an invading army that wants to overthrow your city, the first thing that they wanna do is cut off your water supply. Because eventually you're going to have to get water. Eventually you're going to have to open your gates and then they're going to rush in and they're going to kill you. And they're going to take over your city. So you've got to protect your water supply because if the water supply falls, the city falls. But this city that's described here, this city is different. It cannot be shaken because God himself is in her midst. He is the living water supply. You can't cut God off. 
He dwells inside her walls and so she can't be shaken. She can't fall. No matter what is going on outside of the city, there's peace inside. This is the peace that's available to you and me. This is the peace that, that God promises to you and I, the, the peace that surpasses all understanding, that he is our water supply, that we who are believers, we are indwelt with the, the spirit of the living God that is living water within us, John 4. So that no matter what is going on in life, all the crises that we see when we turn on the news and what we see in our lives all around us, all of that, no matter what, we don't have to be shaken. We're not gonna fall. God is with us. There's peace available to us. Peace that reminds us that no matter what threatens the city, God always comes through. This is what he says in verse five. God will help her at break of day. No matter what happens, just as surely as the sun will rise in the morning, God will be there. He will come through. When I was a, a child, I remember uh, vaguely, you know, four, five, six, you know, up into, you know, my, my preteen, maybe even teenage years, um, becoming so um, worried and overwhelmed, especially at night. I get tired. I remember being a little kid and just getting so overwhelmed and, and just upset about various worries and things that upset me and, and these irrational fears just kind of spilling out of my mind. And my mom, she would stop me and she'd say, honey, go to bed. She wouldn't try to solve any of it. She'd say, go to bed. You will feel better in the morning. I, I tell my kids this, the same thing all the time because they get all worked up and you can see it. It's kind of the bewitching hour and they start getting so upset. They can't even control the tears. They're crying and they don't even know why they're crying and, and they're worried and catastrophizing over all types of things. And I just say, stop. And Carrie and I will just tell them, stop, go to bed. Just go to sleep. I'm not solving anything. Just go to bed. You'll feel better in the morning. I was talking to a, a friend recently. They said that they've always been proud of the fact that they could sleep soundly no matter what was going on in life. It didn't matter, stresses at work, stresses at anything. They could always sleep soundly through the night until now. And I get that, I get that. I've always been somebody who, I, I'm, I'm an overthinker and, and I've always been somebody who wakes up at two or three in the morning if I've got a lot going on in life and I start thinking through things and planning things and processing things and replaying situations and conversations and trying to think how to solve things for the future and I get stressed and worried. But what I've learned over a lifetime now is not to put too much stock into any of those fears or thoughts because I'll feel better when the sun rises. I'll feel better in the morning. I don't think I'm alone in this. I believe that God has, has wired us. I think this is a remarkable thing, but I've talked to so many people to think that it's, um, it's just uh, circumstantial. God has wired us so that, that early morning light, as it begins to dissolve the darkness, can have such a profound effect on our thoughts and our emotions. Have you ever noticed that? Right in the middle of the night, we can't sleep. Worries crowd into our minds, but then the morning comes. It's kind of like, I remember driving early, early morning through Tennessee, through the mountains, the Smoky Mountains. And, the, and you, when you're there driving in the early morning, you see the thick fog. You understand why they're called that. And then the sun begins to break through and it just drives it back. And the fog dissolves in the morning light. 
And it's like that in the morning. God has hardwired us. The, the, the light begins to stream through the blinds somehow. Things just aren't as bad as you thought they were. And here the psalmist seems to connect this psychological phenomenon that morning light in a sense drives our fears away with the very real presence of God. That no matter how dark it gets, morning is coming. As surely as the sun will rise, God is there. He always comes through. Verse six, nations are in an uproar, kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice, the earth melts. Uh, One minute, the, the nations are in an uproar. Kingdoms are falling, it's utter chaos. And in the next, the ground underneath them just just melts away, it's gone. Remember what I said about who wrote this Psalm, the the sons of Korah. It's interesting that that description, Korah and those other insurgents, like the ground just opened up and they were swallowed whole. You wonder if if maybe they had that in their mind even as they wrote this. But one minute, it's it's chaos. There's no way out. There's no hope. And then the next, God puts an end to it all. You know, we think the world's a little bit chaotic right now, and it is, but global pandemic for God. Uh, Crumbling economy for God, injustice for God. All this chaos, all he has to do is to speak a word and the earth itself melts away. And yet God himself remains as our fortress. Verse seven, the Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah, breathe it in. He is our fortress. Come and see the works of the Lord, the desolations he has brought on the earth Verse nine, he makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. In in the context here, this this chaos of the nations, the nations in an uproar and kingdoms falling, this chaos in one sense now is describing how they're fighting against each other, okay? They're in an uproar, the kingdoms are falling, some are winning. They're fighting against one another, but in another sense, they're fighting against God, their, their wars against one another are actually in defiance of God. So here's what this looks like in my house. Um, my kids fight. I know they're not supposed to, and I'm a pastor, you know, so feel free to judge. I didn't say I was a good pastor, but my kids fight. And when they're fighting, in one sense, they're just fighting one another, but in another sense, they are defying Carrie and myself. Because we've made it very clear that the way that they should behave is not to fight, that they should be kind and respectful and treat one another the way that they would like to be treated. And yet, for some reason, they forget all the time. And so they're fighting one another, physically fighting one another, but in another sense, they're fighting us. In another sense, they're defying us. And so what, what do I do as a dad in those moments? When I hear getting out of control and they are going at it and I walk in and I go, stop stop, listen to me, I'm your dad. Which is exactly what God says to them. Verse 10, be still and know that I am God. God looks at the nations, these kingdoms, that think that they can defy him. They're fighting one another, but they are doing this in defiance of him. And he walks in and says, that's enough. And he puts a stop to it. See, I know a lot of us have read this verse and we thought, okay, this is God talking to us, telling us to stop worrying and be quiet and just be in his presence. That's true, we should do that. But in the context here, that's not what's happening. 
The picture here is of the almighty God wading into these childish nations, right? He's among these childish nations who are fighting one another and they have the audacity to think that they can, they can live in defiance of God. And God says to them, be still. That's enough. Stop. Don't you know who I am? I'm God. I will be exalted among the nations. You will listen to me. I will be exalted in the earth. You will do as I say. I, I've, um, I've never been uh, much of a professional wrestling fan. Um, didn't grow up watching professional wrestling, but a number of years back, and I don't remember where I saw this, I, I got sucked into a few minutes of a, a documentary on the life of Andre the Giant. And Andre the Giant was truly a giant of a man. Uh, he was seven and a half feet tall and he weighed almost 600 pounds. In one of his famous uh, matches against Hulk Hogan, um, they had scripted this out. I, I'm ruining professional wrestling for some of you, but they had actually agreed ahead of time that Hulk Hogan would body slam Andre the Giant. He was gonna lift him up over his head, this almost 600 pound man, and then slam him down onto the mat. And so when the, the, the event actually happened, Hulk Hogan incredibly did. I mean, he's a huge, strong man himself. He lifted Andre the Giant over his head, kind of an epic moment in the history of professional wrestling. And he body slammed Andre the Giant. And in the process, he tore a muscle in his back that took months to heal. And he later said it felt like Andre the Giant weighed more, uh, closer to 700 pounds. He almost crushed him. Andre the Giant was a huge big man. And what I loved in this documentary was they, they kept interviewing these wrestlers like Hulk Hogan and these other, these huge muscle bound, you know, giants to me, men. And they would ask them, what was it like to wrestle Andre the Giant? And you know what they all said? They said, when you stepped into the ring against Andre, you just hoped he followed the script. Because if he didn't want to lose, he wasn't going to lose. If he didn't want to be stopped, you weren't going to stop him. What the psalmist describes here, this picture, this is a God who is unstoppable. This is a picture of an evil world and defiance of God trying to make themselves out to be big shots. They're the biggest and the baddest and they've got their shields and their bows and their spears and God walks in and he just brushes them aside. Like they're nothing. He's utterly unimpressed with all their raging and their posturing and their fighting. How tough they think they are. Be still and know that I'm God. How could you forget? Centuries later, um, after this psalm was written, Jesus is asleep in a boat. And he's with his disciples who, remember, were fishermen and they knew what it was like to be out on the open water and, and this storm comes up and you know the story. This crazy storm and it's wind and waves and, and chaos all around them and they are absolutely terrified that they are going to die. They are going to drown and yet Jesus, he's just asleep and they, they wake him up going, Jesus, do you see what's going on around us? Do you see the chaos? Do you see all this situation right now? Like, why are you not? Wake up, Jesus. And so he wakes up. No panic, no fear. Just two words. Be still. 
And he doesn't say it to the disciples. No, no, no. He, he says it to the wind and to the waves. And he doesn't have to say it twice. And he doesn't have to add, I am God, because the wind and the waves, they know perfectly well who Jesus is. The psalmist concludes in verse 11, the Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. It's like he, he, he just wants to say it one more time because he just can't get over it. It's like, do you see this? He, he's with us. The one the world can't touch, the one who is utterly unstoppable, he's with us. He's our refuge and our strength, our fortress. He's with us, which means nothing can touch us because who or what is gonna stand before our God? Nothing and no one. And he's with us. Have you ever read your Bible and it just felt like God left something out? Something kind of important, something kind of crucial. You know, you're reading this and you're thinking, this is so cool, God. You're our ever-present help in trouble. You're our refuge and our strength. You're there to help us and rescue us. Nothing can stand against you and, and you're with us. That's amazing. There's just one little detail, God. It, it, it seems to have been an oversight. If you could just help me out. One thing I didn't catch. When are you gonna solve our problems? Today. I'm, I'm sure you just, it just slipped your mind. You, you intended to tell us, but if you could just let us know when and how you're gonna solve our current troubles, that would be, that'd be great. But of course, God doesn't tell us that. He just says he's gonna be there. See, it's so easy as believers to fall into this trap of thinking that because we know God, that, that nothing bad will ever happen to us or if something somehow slips past God that he's gonna step and immediately correct it for us. But that's not what the Psalm says and it's not what God promises to do. And God never says that he's gonna solve our problems. He says he's going to be there in the midst of our problems. He says that he is our refuge and our fortress. You don't need a refuge unless there is a storm outside. You don't need a fortress unless the enemy is still at large. See, the psalmist isn't saying that there might be trouble. He, he's making it very clear that there will be trouble. It's the same thing that Jesus told his disciples. Not, not his enemies, the people that he loved and he cared about. He said in, verse, in, in John 16, 33, in this world, you will have trouble. But take comfort, I have overcome the world. The fact that we experience trouble shouldn't come as a surprise to us. Jesus literally guaranteed that we will have trouble. God's not surprised. God never promised that he wouldn't give us trouble. God never said he would spare us pain in this life. And in some sense, that should be an encouragement to you. Because if you're experiencing trouble in your life, guess what? It's not a surprise to God. He knew that was gonna happen. In fact, he promised you that that was gonna happen. If you're experiencing trouble and stress and anxiety and, and problems and all the rest of it, congratulations, you are experiencing the normal Christian life. Be encouraged. Because the normal Christian life isn't stress-free. It's not problem-free. It's not health, wealth, and prosperity and success. The normal Christian life is to follow Jesus. And Jesus, if you may recall, experienced suffering and struggle and pain all the way to the cross, all the way to the grave. And he says, follow me. 
says, you will have trouble, but, but, take comfort. I've overcome the world. He's with us. See, our, our hope isn't that God will solve every problem for us. The basis of, of the hope that we have is not that, that God is gonna uh, get rid of the virus. I hope that he does. It's not that we'll come up with a vaccine. It's not that the economy will be uh, fixed. It's, it's not that, that we'll all live um, you know, happily ever after here in America. That, that's just not the basis for our hope. The basis for the hope that extinguishes fear is that the God who cannot be stopped, he's with us. This is why the psalmist keeps repeating himself. Did you see this? In verses one and in seven and 11, it's this theme running throughout the psalm. The Lord Almighty is with us. He doesn't want us to miss it. Our God before whom no one can stand, he's with us. Our God, the one who already defeated our two greatest enemies in sin and death, he's with us. The one who has the authority and the power to say to all of creation, all of the nations, Everything that exists, even to a coronavirus, be still and know that I am God, is with us. And one day he will. One day, that same Jesus who died for the sins of the world and rose again, and even now sits at the right hand of the Father, one day he will say to the world, be still and know that I am God. As it said in verse 10, one day Jesus will be exalted among the nations. He will be exalted over the whole earth. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord and King to the glory of God the Father. And one day this world too will be remade. There will be no more death and no more disease and no more injustice. And one day you and I, along with people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, every class and, and ethnicity and race and any other category you can come up with, we will stand before the throne of God in worship of the Lamb. And in the meantime, he says, oh man, there's gonna be trouble. There will be trouble. But I am with you even to the end of the age. He is our ever-present help in trouble. Brian is gonna come and, um, and then the band's gonna come up. We're gonna have a, a quiet moment of reflection. We are gonna take communion together this morning. This is a time for you to reflect. Um, if you need to go grab some juice and a cracker, go and, and do that too and you can participate with us. We hope that you will. Let me close with this. Um, our world is in chaos. I don't need to tell you that. But our God is not overwhelmed. He's not stressed. It's not like he didn't see all of this coming, but he is our refuge and he is our strength. And he never said that he would spare us pain, but, but he also didn't spare himself. The father didn't spare his own son in order to rescue us. Jesus didn't spare his own life to rescue us. And the one who has overcome even sin and death, he's with us. He's with us. Let me pray. Father, we come to you this morning um, at a chaotic time in the world. One that none of us could have seen coming. Um, but you are in no way caught off guard. 
In no way did you, uh, are you worried? In no way are you concerned? In no way are you wondering what's gonna happen next? And so we praise you. We give you worship and Lord, we reach out to you and we ask you that you would meet us where we're at. Lord, we know that you're always there. It's not a question of whether you're here. The question is whether we are aware of your presence, whether we know you. So Lord, I pray that you would make yourself real to us right now. And even as we prepare for communion, Lord, you would just quiet our hearts as we reflect on the, the reality that you are with us, that you have made a way for us to be with you through Jesus' death and resurrection. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Throughout the centuries of the church, throughout all the history of the church, um, regardless of uh, your particular um, conviction about the Lord's presence in the bread and the wine, uh, the church has always recognized that this is a significant moment in, in our life together as the body of Christ. That this is a, a unique moment in which we experience the presence of Jesus. And for no other reason than the fact that he said, where two or more are gathered in my name, he's there. Uh, right now, I am uh, standing pretty much alone. Nope, not totally alone. Uh, in a very, very large room. But the band is here and, and, uh, and we know that Jesus is here as well. He's here in our midst. And wherever you're watching from right now, maybe you're uh, with your family, maybe you're with a spouse or a friend, um, you know that Jesus is with you as well. He's present. And maybe you're watching alone. And even then, I wanna tell you that you're not alone. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have the, the Holy Spirit living inside of you and dwelling you. And they, someone uh, asked Charles Spurgeon one time, how was it that he was able to accomplish so much by himself and Spurgeon said, you forget there are two of us. And so even if you are alone in one sense, you're not alone. God is there. And while we are separated and continue to be separated physically from one another, if you're part of our family, I just want you to know that we are thinking of you, we love you, and you're not alone. We're together in spirit. When we come to the Lord's Supper and we are reminded of Jesus, his presence with us, we are reminded and we are celebrating the fact that the, the one who gave his life in order to reconcile us to God so that we could be with God and to reconcile us to one another, right? that he gave his life, his, his body given for us, his blood poured out for us, that he is yet alive. He's with us. He is our ever-present help in trouble. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took, he took the bread. He said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
In the same way, Jesus took the cup, the cup of redemption. He said, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant. Pour it out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. As often as we take this bread and we drink this cup together, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Father, again, we just come to you. We're grateful that you are in our presence. We may forget. We may be distracted by all the wind and the waves all around us. But as Peter learned on that stormy night, we just need to keep our eyes on you. Lord, let us be aware of your presence. Let us follow you faithfully. Let us be found faithful as a people as we seek you. And if that would be a testimony to the the world around us that in the midst of chaos, they are so desperate for hope that they would see our hope and we would be prepared to give an answer for the hope we have, that you are real and that you love us. We pray all this in your name. Amen.